Welcome to the Flexible Office Economy Podcast, bringing you conversations with the leaders and innovators pushing the flexible office economy forward. Here's your host, Mark Gilbreth. This is the Flexible Office Economy, and I'm Mark Gilbreth. My guest today is Dan Tangerlini, the Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective. Dan's career arc has spanned local and federal government, and more recently, private enterprise. Some notable waypoints for Dan, beginning with CFO for the D.C. Police Department, general manager of the Washington Metro Area Transit Authority, something I was a frequent writer of in my youth, and then for three years during the Obama administration, administrator of the GSA, which in practical terms means, Dan, you were likely overseeing the world's largest workplace. Welcome, Dan. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Mark. And I appreciate the introduction and the review of the resume between running Metro and having the chance to be the GSA administrator. also served as the CFO of the Treasury Department in the global financial crisis. So you put all this stuff together. I was wondering what I was preparing for with this bizarre resume, and it feels like it's kind of today. Well, I just finished a college tour with my daughter Tallulah in final final selections, but two weeks ago we were staying at the W Hotel across the street from your old office, looking out at the statue of Hamilton through the window in an eerily vacant cityscape. So what a face shift in the last two and a half months. I guess I have to say, welcome to work from anywhere, Dan. How's the water so far? It's so funny. I joined the Emerson Collective because I got tired from working from home. It seems like that fate is directing me to work from home again. While I was working at the GSA, one of the things we did was we had 100% of people sign up for a telework plan, including the administrator. I had my own telework plan. And, And the idea being was we really believed that between technology and an evolving demand for federal services, that space needed to be more fluid. And if you don't mind my stealing a brand name, maybe more liquid. Well, it's been five years since you left the GSA. Can we ask you to put your hat back on again? Sure. It's sitting nearby my metaphorical GSA hat, and I hope no one who's currently working at GSA minds if I try it back on for the conversation. So every organization has its own culture. What will the GSA, PBS, Public Building Service sort of organizational reflex be to COVID? I presume like most organizations, the majority of employees in the federal government are probably working from home or somewhere other than the federal workplace for the most part. How would you have responded? Were you still at the helm? How do you imagine they are reacting? Is it any different than public sector? It's a great set of questions. I remember the opportunity I had to take the helm of GSA came after a scandal that was a result of, at some level, one aspect of the culture of the organization. What I found over the time I was there was I really fell in love with the enterprise and the people who are engaged in it, who had the, I think, closest thing to a private sector mentality as you can in government, because every day they had to get up and sell to or satisfy a customer. And those customers happen to be federal employees and federal agencies. And to be perfectly honest, in a way, they're kind of the toughest customer because there was nothing that said they actually had to buy your product, right? And there was nothing in the, in the form of motivation even to say, save money, which always shocked me. So what I found was that the, the GSA folks really were constantly trying to find ways to appeal to the client, satisfy their interests and needs, and do it in a way that wasn't just simply bottom line. It was quality, it was consistency, it was security, it was safety. I think that culture was there when I got there, and it was definitely there when I left. I'm sure it's still there. 
I know a lot of people who are still there who still kind of embody that spirit. So I imagine that that's really where GSA's head is at right now, is how can we provide the necessary services to our clients that embody the need for service delivery and safety as well as security. So like any property owner who's busy out there trying to figure out how they're going to keep their property relevant and how they're going to keep their clients satisfied, that's what they're struggling with too. Let's park the health and safety piece for a moment. I want to drill on that deeply, but but first let's just double click on one aspect of what you were sort of well-recognized for during your time at GSA, which was this agenda under the Obama administration to drive a top-to-bottom sort of efficiency pursuit, looking to drive more capital efficiency out of the PBS and GSA spend. How will this pandemic event sort of affect the long arc of that initiative? Is it going to be an accelerant or is it going to be a deterrent and actually lead to more federal spend? This is part of the raging debate now. Are we going to... It's not interesting if you don't ask questions like that. It's dangerous to try to answer them. I think the answer at some level is yes. I never found that the federal government acted in a monolithic way on anything. And so some agencies are going to awaken to the reality that a more fluid relationship to office space tied to enhanced technology, enhanced remote access. It's going to bring new people to that team. They're always going to be the intransigent. I wanted to go back to yesterday. People, I dealt with those every day in agencies who really felt the madman office layout was exactly the way the office should be laid out. That was actually pretty predominant. I remember I, sh- I would show people around the GSA headquarters and show them our hot spacing and the more portable office that we provided folks. And the key to that was a laptop. And that was just mind blowing to people that you would actually give and trust a federal employee with a laptop. I would often get the question, aren't they going to steal it? And it's like, look, if you're worried about your people stealing office equipment, you're probably got a much bigger set of management problems than whether they're going to work from home or not. I think that many, many more agencies have kind of come to the conclusion that we were hard at work trying to get people to understand is that through technology, that really you can open up the door for people to be much more mobile and access their work wherever they are, or maybe wherever that work is. That's the really interesting thing. What if federal employees were more present near the work that they were actually doing? Let's linger for a moment on that portion of the work that does happen in the federal workplace. Let's recall the design programs, the the design patterns, that madman office that was sort of the playbook five years ago and up to two months ago. How do you think that fares? I mean, here in this moment, maybe it's an age, but we're in a moment where proximity is scary. Open plan means open air, means I'm going to hear the cough of the person next to me and be cyclically rocked by that. I'm struggling to wrap my head around that. Do we just wait and see? Do we begin the rework of changing those plans? Again, let's imagine you're at the helm. Like, How do you begin to tackle that aspect? You get projects in flight to, to lay out ever more dense offices. How do you begin to parse that? I actually think that the open office plan... We called it the flexible office plan. And I think in many ways that that's one of the great things about pulling down walls is that there is the possibility of maybe using different furniture systems to put walls back in, more flexible walls. You know, there's a great question. You may think you're safer 
by sitting behind a half inch of drywall. I'm not a virologist, so I don't know if you actually are and you have less air exchange. I really think it has less to do with walls or no walls than it does with the number of people in the space and the quality of the ventilation in the air. And to be perfectly honest, dramatically improved the amount of light, access to air, ventilation when we started pulling out walls. And another cool thing, opening windows, very new modern technique known as letting fresh air in. I would be careful making any sweeping broad brush judgment in one direction or another, because I just don't think we know enough yet. I think this is the big concern as people have kind of tapped more into emotion and less into science, is that you're going to be reacting in a way that may or may not actually be helpful to the outcome we're all seeking, which is the safest possible environment for people to get work done. That environment could be home, or that environment could be temporary spots where people are working on so that teams can be broken up a little bit and given a little bit more literally room. Speaking of home, as now an extension of the workplace, we're both in it right now. It was the no-brainer reaction, what, 10, 12 weeks ago when shutdowns swept across the country. It's been startling the last several weeks, though. Home and the conversation about home and working from home has become a headline. It's become a, a talking point on Bloomberg and NPR and MSNBC as CEO after CEO and CFO after CFO are now starting to talk about either an extended or in some cases, a permanent embrace of home as part of the workplace. And it's not just the left coast progressive companies, the, the Twitters and the Facebooks that have now sort of declared that home is going to be an eternal privilege you got the likes of Morgan Stanley and Barclays and others that are talking about much less real estate. As a CFO and as a guy that owned a massive workplace, how surprised are you by that wave of embrace for distributed or telework or home? As a CFO, I was not surprised. Yeah. It was part of my motivation, frankly, at GSA and certainly at the Treasury Department, where I tried to create more mobility for the workforce there too, but we ran into data security issues. That was at least the ultimate excuse for not doing more of it. I think what you've seen is a lot of progress on the data security front. And frankly, a realization that you may not be as safe and secure in the office environment as you thought you were anyway. It's a lot about training. It's a lot about data hygiene, and that that can happen as well in people's homes as it can in their place of work. Five years ago, did the data argument feel like a legitimate resistance or a legitimate reason to go slower on the initiatives you were championing? Or did it just feel like kind of the institutional antibody attacking a foreign idea? It definitely was the latter. I showed in this one particular meeting, I showed our senior security officer an ad from one of the government serving technology magazines about Wi-Fi data in the military theater. And I was like, look, if we can keep these guys safe while they're doing the most dangerous job in the world, I imagine there's some lesson we can use to keep ourselves safe. As the CIO of the agency pointed out, look, the minute you hook up to the internet, you've already invited in the problems. So saying I'm going to build this moat around the place is ignoring the fact that we let people walk out with, at the time, Blackberries. All their email was going through public communications networks and then through a back end, which you tried to keep safe. So I think for the most part, it was, and I've seen this a lot in government where 
People fear the decision that could be traced back to a problem. The status quo may be terrible, but it's a status quo that was built from a bunch of decisions that frequently preceded the person whose job it is to protect the system. And so they're going to say, look, my risk profile, my risk exposure is enough. I don't want to make any more decisions that extend that risk a little more and particularly extend the accountability back to me. It feels different now, though, when you've got James Gorman, the CEO of Morgan Stanley on Bloomberg saying, clearly, we will need much less real estate. Mm -hmm. When you've got Mark Zuckerberg coming out and saying, 50% of our employees in five to 10 years will likely be working from home or distributed. It just feels that this debate about what should workplace be, where should it be, it's moved beyond the academic argument between the evangelists of telework and the bureaucrats defending the institution. Like It does feel like it's gone up a level, and it feels like there are some bigger levers acting on that fulcrum of how we did it. I think that my comment about the person whose job it is to somehow guard the current status quo, that isn't always a lower or mid-level person. That's oftentimes the CEO. Yeah. They're like, look, I'm only here for, in the case of a government appointee, two to three years, in a case of a CEO, five to seven years. They don't want to be the person who took on the harebrained idea of sending everyone home with a laptop and cutting the real estate in half. Because you might get one quarter's worth of bump out of it on the market, but if you had some giant data breach that someone said, oh, it's because our productivity fell through the floor, and says, oh, because you gave everyone a laptop and sent them home, that's going to wipe out everything. So the answer is, nah, that's not a place I want to focus. It's almost until you get a pandemic when it's actually dangerous at some level to be in the office when people are like, huh, let's think about the office. It's a pipe and wire thing. It's a plumbing thing. If it works, leave it alone. The only decision that generally folks want to make when they're in a position like that involving real estate is when you're buying a new headquarters, when somehow you've convinced the board that that's a way of projecting power. Or, and so that's when they get excited. Otherwise, most people like just try to keep that as far away from me as possible. And I personally think that at some level, that's a shame. The organizations are run by those operations. And those operations have components like space and technology. It's like a car or a big ship. If you're a captain, I guess you could go up to the helm of the big ship, never visit the engine room, and you can probably get across the ocean a few times safely. But if you really, really want to get to know your ship and know what it can do, and then you've got to really walk all around it and care about what the age of that power plant is. I think in government in particular, you have a lot of people who, if they've ever made it down to the boiler room, they say to themselves, I'm never going back in there if I can help it again. That's not why I went through the confirmation process, to worry about a seven-year plan for restructuring office space. And so that's, I think, the ultimate challenge that you face when you're dealing with these big institutions and making a change like this. It does seem like there are reflections of 2008 and the global financial crisis in what's in play now in that it was at that time when top line revenues were compressed enough that there was a round of CFOs and, and CEOs acting on portfolio reduction to get cost reductions, right? You yeah. got to make earnings. Top line's not growing. We'll work on real estate. And most big companies saw some level of compression. Feels like we're there again at one level in that 
There's massive uncertainty economically. It feels like the CFOs have their pencils out now and have been given sort of free reign to pull this lever of portfolio reduction and, and lean into some amount of distributed work as an easy gain. I'm just afraid that what you're going to see is a lot of people reacting in an emergent way to the current emergency rather than saying, okay, we've got some emergent issues. We need to respond to them quickly. But what can we use this moment for strategically to reposition ourselves to be in a stronger position to compete later on? And I think that that's hard to do when you've got lots and lots of fires burning and you're running from one to the other, talking about fireproofing, talking about installing sprinklers and later construction sounds a little off time, you know, chronologically wrong. That's exactly when you need to be thinking about that kind of stuff. You need to be asking yourself, what can I do to make myself and my organization a more resilient organization, a more effective one, not just a more efficient one and not just a cheaper one? I wholeheartedly agree. It does feel we're in an election year. You live in DC. So I'm going to start to pull the political metaphors into play here in this conversation. It does feel in the insular world of office and commercial real estate where I marionate every day, every hour, it does feel like we're devolving into a politicized debate, an all or nothing debate of home versus office. (laughs) And the conservative camp of the establishment, the brokers, the investors, in some cases, the corporate leaders arguing for the office and the service providers all rolling out their playbooks to return to the office and not willing to have any discussion about anything other than the office. And then we have the other angry camp, the progressives, arguing for (laughs) flexibility and choice and save the planet and sustainability and work from anywhere, work from home. They're shouting at one another. And it seems to be papering over the more substantive opportunity, which is the and, which is, oh my goodness, what if we factored both these things into play? What if workplace was a distributed concept? Well, you know, politics at its core is just the allocation, the society's structure for allocating scarce resources, right? It's just an argument over how are we going to allocate our resources? In this case, time, money, space technology work. And I think, you know, you're going to have people who are deeply committed to the status quo because it was working for them, or it doesn't matter if it was working for them or not. I own a building. I've got a mortgage. You got to come back, please hurry up. And you're going to pound the table to get people back in it. And also fear too. If you're economically winning through that model, there's the fear of missing out or a fear of what that change might mean to What you labeled as progressive, uh, it's disrupting. It's disrupting to their economic model. It's disrupting to their mortgage payment. It's disrupting to maybe their relative position. That's the other part of politics, frankly, is accumulating power and resources and position and trying to keep competition away. There's nothing inherently bad about it. And I think that that's part of what we're dealing with now is that there is a deeply installed base of investment in these assets that are going to do everything they can to protect their value. And so this idea of saying like, well, now everyone work from home, it's all good. What if you own hundreds of millions of square feet of office space? What if you own a thousand square feet of office space? That's pretty horrifying at some level. And so I understand it. The question is, is it ever going to be 
one way or the other? Is it going to be all or nothing? I almost think like you could make some argument that people are going to need more space because you're going to need social distance, at least temporarily, as we figure out how you actually live in a world of COVID-19, never mind COVID-20 or whatever happens next. I actually think it's probably too soon to be making giant bets one way or the other. I don't think it's ever smart to stake out other than interesting. It's certainly interesting to stake out a strong position on one side or the other. I actually think it's too soon to make a bet, too big a bet one way or the other. I don't think it's too soon to make a bet that, look, we're going to be doing more of this. We're all going to be Zooming a bunch more, all going to be staying in our homes a bunch more. We'll be in offices less, at least for a while. And so what are the short-term impacts of those changes going to be? I worked with the mayor of DC's office on a task force she put together for reopening DC, and I co-chaired a committee on transportation and infrastructure. There's some pretty interesting and powerful and scary concerns about what the transportation network is going to be like when and if a bunch of people try to go back to what they were doing, say, back in January or February. Because in many cities like Washington, D.C., it was already beyond capacity. And so you take out a big chunk of the percentage of capacity of mass transit, which has happened. What happens then to the roads? No one was building roads for the last month or two, and that wouldn't necessarily be a great idea either. So I think that there's still a bunch of probing and failing and testing and annoyance and frustration that's going to happen. It's so ironic, just on that mass transit front, it's so ironic, at least it seems to me, and this might be an overly simplistic perspective, but ironic that those cities like D.C. and New York that have, at least in North American standards, the better mass transit systems. You may hate them, but you use them. I mean, they're, they're beloved in the sense that it's a part of your daily life. But how ironic that those cities, based upon the fact that travel does happen via the transit systems, are now the most off-putting or uncomfortable relative to re-entry to work. And the, yep. the Denver or the Phoenix, the community where I could drive to work and park and walk into a horizontal building rather than a vertical tower, suddenly looks a whole lot more practical for reentry. And it's perhaps precisely the wrong thing that we want in terms of a sustainable standard for how to make the planet habitable for the next 100 years. And anyone who feels too comfortable about that kind of approach should Google around a little bit. <laughs> Because there was a, an article that came out where a data scientist tried to link actually the New York subway to the distribution of the virus. And that got countered by a number of other data scientists that actually, in one particular one, said, look, it's a dangerous correlation problem the person was doing. And they could show that you could correlate data more closely to car commuting for spread of the virus than transit commuting. And what they were arguing was, we're not going to say that cars spread coronavirus, but you shouldn't say that the transit was either. And the simple fact is, through people doing the socially correct thing as staying at home, wearing a mask, staying clean, the transit systems doing their job to clean, it's probably not as inherently dangerous at, you know, one versus the other. That's a hard thing to convince anyone of. I'm not sure I would feel super comfortable getting in a squish load, crush load transit vehicle either. I like the fact that I live close enough where I can walk. That's the ultimate. That's the real winner, frankly. 
There's so many layers to this challenge as we start to think about reentry. I mean, there's how do I get to work? Is it in my Prius or is it in the squish load BART train or MTA bus? And then, of course, there's I arrive at work. Am I walking through my own door or am I squeezing into a shared door? And am I then queuing to get into an elevator to go up 30 floors or am I able to walk without any interaction to walk-up desk. So it's overwhelming in the face of not really knowing the epidemiology that well yet to contemplate confidently back into these environments that we've left behind for two months. And that's where improved testing and even office-based means of, you know, like temperature checking and then being rewiring the workaholic American office worker from the idea that going in sick is playing hurt and that's honorable. We have this weird relationship in this country to sick leave. Oddly enough, it's like sick leave is considered a benefit rather than a basic need or right in the workplace. And so what we're doing is encouraging people to come to the office sick. Sometimes we're making them do it. Let's venture into this topic of health and safety. You've got a wonderful podcast that you do with Danny Werfel uh, called Gov Actually. Encourage folks to, to look it up. You might double listenership to 20. It might double to 20 or 24 even. Your last episode you had on Cass Sustine yeah. from Harvard and I think former OMB guy. He ran the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, the most powerful office in the government that no one knows about. And very much a deep thinker. And you and Danny and Cass were getting into some heavy stuff. I mean, the, you know, the economics of the value of a human life. It was grounding and also terrifying to hear Cass talk about it as plain spokenly as he did. Uh, but he, he shared that the value of a human life in economic terms at the federal policy level is now $10 million, you know, as a function of the willingness of an individual to put themselves yeah. into an environment of risk. With our corporate campuses shut down right now, and brokers and service providers and corporate real estate leaders now rolling out their playbooks for Reentry and trying to recast that environment to make it feel safe. How much should we expect companies to spend to remove the statistical risk of COVID mortality? And we'll go deeper into whether that should be regulated or not. But just as a starting point, like, what do you think the prudent CFO, workplace exec mindset should be as it relates to this invisible threat that's out there presently? I think that's a really great question because the only answer I can come up with right now is I don't know. And the answer is, the reason why is uh, I, don't, I don't know if the science is clear enough about what are the interactions, what are the steps you should be taking. Now, that's not a satisfying answer for most tenants and frankly, for most landlords. You know, most landlords are going to say, look, I don't know if it works or not, but this is what other people are doing. So I'm going to do it so I can maintain the competitive advantage and send a signal to the tenant that I care deeply about their health and safety. Post 9-11, there was a term that came up that was kind of invented for people throwing spaghetti at the wall in terms of security just to try to demonstrate their passion, their focus, or empathy. It was called security theater. And the idea is to show people that there's something happening. And behind it, there was not much science at all Sometimes there was uh, science that showed that that was actually harmful. The big planters that got put out in front of a bunch of buildings, there were a number of ballistics tests done on certain ones of them that showed they could turn into shrapnel. They could actually be more dangerous. The Jersey barriers, the, the highway walls were lethal as a bomb defense. You know, people liked seeing them. They felt... The optics you know, sold. The optics sold. And so I think you're going to see 
a number of investments made around those kind of optics just to send a signal to people we care. I see the arguments for those investments being made. I see it in every playbook that's being crafted by architecture firm, you know, facilities management service provider. And honestly, I think they're well-intentioned in the sense that those that wrote them, I think, are trying to be as thoughtful as they can. Though up at the strategic level, it does feel a bit like theater. If that theater really is coming from a place of empathy, here's my beef. Like, I don't hear the conversation yet much about the mindset of the employee. What I see is playbook after playbook about come back to the office. It's almost a foregone conclusion. You know, we're making it safe. You will re-enter. And not much discussion or debate even about will the employee want to? And what will the psychic burden be? There's going to be PTSD, I would think, as people step beyond their homes. And that's not me arguing for the death of the office. My feelings are quite the opposite. I don't hear the individual in their experience being factored into the overall equation. I think it depends on who you're talking to and when. My organization, just as an individual example, and I'll pat it on the back in the sense that, say, I hear that a lot from our organization, that, look, we want to reopen the office and open it for those who can go and want to go. And the can go includes, you know, people with childcare issues. Some of the people who want to get back to the office the most are the ones who won't be able to because they've got toddlers at home and there's no daycare. Just seeing the gyration some of them go through to try to stay on an hour and a half long Zoom call without China syndrome happening, you know, without Chernobyl happening in their metaphorical Chernobyl happening in their house. It's really impressive. The work at home thing is productive for a sliver of folks who have the privilege of a quiet space, enough space, really high quality internet, and not a lot of distractions like little kids, or in my case, the COVID probably puppy. poorly timed pandemic puppy. Yeah, pandemic puppy. <laughs> Given that most are going to want something other than home, at least part of the time, I think a lot of the surveying and the data suggests that there is going to be a much larger home population some of the time, and a meaningful one that's going to be all the time. But many are going to need home something other than home much of the time. Those individuals that, whether it's one day a week or five days a week, that they're going to venture back to something other than home, they're going to need a clarity of expectation around the safety of that environment and the safety of getting there, whether that's by their own vehicle or, or mass transit. How do we achieve a clarity and a confidence of expectation for this is a two part question? I'll ask it for the employees first. Like, how, how do we go about that? What should the establishment do to achieve that peace of mind for the employees? Is it the theater? Is that the play? I actually think it it does come back to an issue then of public policy. I think the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, was created for just frankly this reason. To have a national level accumulator of expertise and the best science to try to provide them the highest quality and consistent guidance that then state public health authorities can distribute in and modulate for the cultural and social and economic and geographic differences of each state. That actually could be the source of a confident path 
back. The problem is, getting back to your political statement, that place of certainty, of unbiased, where we should find unbiased certainty in fact, has been politicized because sometimes it's an inconvenient to steal Al Gore's phrase. It's an inconvenient truth that reopening everything today might actually be deeply dangerous. It's deeply dangerous for the economy to stay closed. I get that. But it's going to be really, really, really bad for the economy if we have a giant wave two that scares the heck out of everyone and no one has anywhere to turn to for any information that they think is true. And this is why the post-fact world or the alternate fact world is so perilously dangerous to actually protecting those assets and the status quo. This is what is mind-blowing to me is that actually the people who have the, the most at stake financially for having some kind of clarity don't seem to be recognizing that value and they're more trading on the moment. So the CDC has been, could yet again be, should be the source of that guidance. I'm sort of playing back to give clarity to the returning workforce. Are they also the source that employers could tap to achieve clarity of expectation about the health and safety of third-party environments that they might be sending their employees to? To me, there's two challenges. There's, I'm the head of the GSA. I'm going to invite the federal employee back to the office that I built and I control. So I've got a certainty around it and I've, I've crafted it to CDC standards. There's also this growing population of third-party space providers, the flexible office world, right? Mm-hmm. Co-working space, the serviced office, the incubator, the hotel lobby. And that's becoming an ever large part of distributed workplace. How should employers achieve clarity of expectation around that landscape that's out of their control? Ideally, we talked about this in the mayor's task force is having some kind of Department of Public Health set of guidelines and possibly even a certification and potential inspection regime if people wanted it or frankly, even if they didn't. You're hearing that conversation. Is that an inevitability that OSHA or some federal entity will get to that? Is it inevitable that they will? Or is that even up for grabs? I think that's completely up for grabs because OSHA has been vilified as the personification of runaway regulation. Make my business more expensive to run. Exactly right. So that's what I'll shamelessly plug the Gov Actually podcast, but go back and listen. You know, the regulations actually come from deep scientific analysis of data, and they're actually argued over the cost of the regulation versus the benefit. And the ultimate benefit measurement is in human lives. If a set of workplace guidelines or even a standard to follow was to come from a federal apparatus, would it be OSHA? Or where else might it come from? I could see it coming. The Department of Labor would probably be the one to do it. Department of Agriculture for places like meatpacking plants, which could probably use that right away. Department of Labor would probably be the big one. They would lean heavily on CDC from the science side of government. And frankly, if it were working the way it should work, there would actually be some very clear guidelines that people could at least fall back on and say, look, I did my best. I applied the rules that the best, hardest working people came up with in a very public process that measured costs and benefits. And if it didn't work, at least you could say, I tried my hardest. 
the world we're operating in now, a lot of room for hucksterism, a lot of room for safety theater, a lot of room for no one's making me do anything, so I'm not going to do it, get back to work. It's not ideal. So this is probably the hallmark of me being a bad interviewer, but let me ask another one of those questions that's maybe hard to answer or is unanswerable. Further to this line of discussion, if Department of Labor, OSHA, somewhere within the apparatus that has the data, has the thinkers, the scientists that wants to be able to produce some of these real fact-based guidelines, were that to happen, which we've already decided, may, you've already sort of represented, may not, but were it to, what's the over-under on how fast that could reasonably come about? It's not coming yet, but like if someone said, we're going to do it, if, if shock and awe, there was a an executive mandate to go make that happen. Is there was it, you know, a, there when, was when an could executive it? mandate to make it happen? It could happen very fast. It wouldn't necessarily be perfect. It wouldn't necessarily be ideal. I don't think that there's a deep interest in owning any part of this. There is one thought, well, thousand flowers bloom, let people figure it out. I think for people who actually have 30-year mortgages, for people who have built companies over decades, for people who bring thousands of people together, for people who insure the risk, actually, it would be such a great thing. It would relieve a huge amount of pressure from the economy if someone was actually going to stand up at a federal level and say, here is at least what we think the basic minimum standards based on the science that we know, rather than just saying, good luck, and maybe a governor or two will show some leadership. And By the way, I'm never allowed to be this strongly positioned in my viewpoint during Gov Actually. So it's, you know, I appreciate you. I don't feel like I'm letting this be raw enough, but okay, good, good. I'm yeah, glad it, I'm glad it feels that way. Probably as raw as you're going to get me because I ultimately think by just going to the partisan extreme, what you're actually doing is giving people an excuse not to listen to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And, and frankly, the middle is not occupied politically because the middle is hard. You can't put the middle on a bumper sticker. The middle says we need an OSHA, but we need it to be one that is actually supporting the work of business and offices, not just shutting them down. And so, my argument is that that's not the OSHA we actually have, but that's the one that we've been told politically we have. You and I both now live in private enterprise, although your work at Emerson Collective sort of takes you into the public sphere more so than mine, but we have the freedom of action of, of private entities. I feel like you and I have a shared perspective that there are, you've just articulated it, there is a need for guidelines. There is science that will evolve that can help us make these environments safer. The ability to articulate those guidelines and maybe standards and maybe a certification will make the workplace not only more emotionally safe, psychically safe and comfortable, but truly lower the mortality rates. How do we get there? Is this the domain for a USGBC or a well or a fit well? Uh, is there room for a public-private partnership with a CDC? Like if the executive branch isn't going to say, make it happen, and right. it's going to be left to people that are driven perhaps outside of that sphere. Give me a playbook. I'm looking for answers on this. That's, I know. That's why you keep asking the question, dude, what do I do? <laughs> and what do we do? Like, what does liquid space do? Like, should we jump into this race? Should mm -hmm. we say, listen, no one is saying there should be a standard yet, but should we go build one? And, and would the CDC come along or what's the path? Possibly, yeah. or maybe a particular Department of Health. I think the reason why you won't get a USGBC or like entity doing it because if you're certifying sustainability, yes, there's some risk and liability that the building isn't quite as 
sustainable as you thought it was, but who's actually going to test it? How do you actually ever know? You get the plaque and... And it takes 20 years to know, right? And even then it's murky. This topic, someone might die in January. And that's why it frankly has to go higher up or over to another decision-making hierarchy where there's a little bit of protection. I mean, you're a lawyer. You'd have this brainwave this weekend. You come in on Tuesday and you're like, we're going to do this. We're going to certify all our offices as COVID safe. And your lawyer is going to say, really? (laughs) And what happens when someone happens to get sick there? That's what's really going to be the big challenge. That's probably why you don't see too many people running into the fray right now. That's probably why the CDC isn't making it their job one. They're like, yeah, we're working on a vaccine. We'll call you in a year and hopefully the vaccine will take care of it. And it cuts both ways. I had a conversation last week with the global head of real estate for a prominent technology company who said, I need to hear from the space providers and the building owners that I'm released of liability before I let my employees go back in. My employee walks in unbeknownst to he's contagious, and then I'm liable for a lawsuit from the infected counterparty in the army. So this seems like such a legally fraught landscape, yet there's a near and present critical need to address these things. I feel paralyzed on the topic, though. It's in these legally fraught issues that really affect society at large is why we have a government. It's why we agree to regulation. And so for people who say, look, I don't want any of that. I don't want, then you got to take on the liability. What strikes me is how quickly people are like, yeah, but I don't want the liability. You know, I don't like the government. A tornado hits my town. I want a loan like that. These things kind of relate to each other. We've got this fascinating nationwide natural disaster happening right now. I guess we have to put our heads on our pillows and both accept the reality, which is it's messy. Try to fall asleep with that and with the hope that there are well-intentioned people that are thinking about the mortality. They are thinking about the human experience. They are thinking about the fate of the planet before us. Yeah. And I think on this, we're talking on this Memorial Day weekend and when we honor the people who made sacrifices in defense of our country and in protecting our values, I think we should honor those people and those values and that defense. And we should honor all the people we've lost. We're going on nearly 100,000 Americans to this disease. And it's a tragedy. What are we going to make of that tragedy that's worthy of that sacrifice? And that's always been the lesson we've tried to learn from our military engagements. I had the deep honor of joining my father. I was going to ask you about that back in Belgium for the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge, in which he served as a 20-year-old in the 101st Airborne. I'm lucky to be on this earth because he was one lucky guy to get out of there. He walked down the streets of Bastogne and people would hug him. Can't do that now for obvious reasons. And they wanted his autograph. And you know he was treated as a hero because he was viewed as one of the people who saved their town, their country, and their society from something deeply disturbing, troubling, and dangerous. I have the honor and pleasure to be married to a pediatric nurse practitioner. My brother is a paramedic in the San Francisco Fire Department. My daughter was a grocery store checker. There are these people we rely on so heavily in our society that if there's any silver lining that, you know, maybe they're suddenly getting noticed. They are the heroes of this moment. They are the doughboys. They are the GIs. 
I saw the flag at half mast at our post office here in town yesterday. Mm-hmm. I just can't help but, which I, yes, it should be. 100,000 Americans have lost their lives and a million or more heroes in the grocery stores and in the fire departments and in the ERs. They are once again racing into the breach mm-hmm. without asking, without questioning. They're answering the call. And for there to be such a crass disregard, I think, in terms of the leadership that's needed for us to actually handle those risk realities in a thoughtful way and consider an informed and data-driven path forward, it makes me curdle. Because of that, the people who do have the responsibility of bringing people into offices or not should be super sensitive about the fact that people may have been touched deeply adversely by what's happened. And people have a right to be afraid and nervous. And frankly, they have a right to be confused because the information to date has been confusing. And the reason why is because the science is still new. We should have some patience and we should recognize that we're going to need to experiment and we should try our best to do our best and recognize that we'll probably get some of it wrong. But it would be great if we could get together on this and work collectively to try to at least come up with the best answers that we could give folks. We owe it to them. Well, on this Memorial Day weekend, I was about to say, go hug your heroes, go hug your loved ones. And of course, I suppose if they're in the household, you can. Otherwise, yeah, zoom them, elbow bump those heroes, think about those heroes. They are out there amongst us at scale. Thank you, Dan, very much. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your audience of millions. I look forward to seeing you soon, at least at six feet. Indeed. Cheers. Cheers, Mark. Cheers.